Well, it is my joy to share God's word. I love to study and be able to share what the Lord has taught me and what he teaches me as I continue to study his word on a regular basis, and I trust that you guys do the same. Um, I'm thankful to the women's leadership team for this opportunity, and uh, thankful to our ladies on the music team who helped prepare our hearts to worship our Lord and to learn from his word, so thank you for that. Then I've really enjoyed uh, studying our book for this year, In All Things, right? The study of Philippians and enjoyed listening to the lessons being taught on Wednesdays um, and also participating in Titus 2 discussions. Uh, I trust that you all have enjoyed that as well. Um, In um, the next, this month and next month, we read chapters four and five, so you have additional tasks over the holidays to work on two chapters. So chapter four talks about joy in humility, and chapter five talks about joy in obedience. So we'll be covering Philippians 2 today, not in its entirety, but uh, the, the portions that are pertinent to our lesson. So just to review, so far we have learned about Paul's dramatic conversion, start of the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16. The Philippian church was near and dear to Paul. He thanked God for them. He prayed for them. He had them in their heart. They were generous towards Paul and his ministry. Last month, specifically, we learned about Paul's circumstances, his confidence, his conflict, and his charge to the Philippian church. He charged them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to stand firm with one mind, in one spirit, to strive together for the faith of the gospel, in no way to be alarmed by their opponents. Christ is Paul's identity. Christ is the message. He is the word of God. He is the gospel. Without Christ, there is no gospel. Neither Paul's circumstances nor any of his opponents will keep Christ from being exalted. Nothing will keep Christ from being exalted. Christ is the one word takeaway from last month's lesson, if you were here. So turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we start. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this new day, this new morning, this opportunity to come before you, just to open our hearts, ready to learn. Thank you for this time that we could worship you with song, with our hearts, and now as we listen, keep away every distraction. Lord, let the Holy Spirit speak through me. Thank you for your word that I have learned, you have taught me. Uh, Pray that I would speak the words that you want me to speak. Pray that my eyes and all of our eyes would be fixed on you, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Okay, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we live in humility and obedience? How can we have a humble and an obedient attitude? Paul answers this question for us by giving us the supreme example of the Lord Jesus Christ, a supreme example of humility and obedience. Believers are called to live a life of humility 
and obedience by following his example. That is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have titled our lesson today, A Call to Humility and Obedience. A Call to Humility and Obedience. In our outline, firstly, we will look at the call, verse five. Secondly, the example, verses six through 11. And thirdly, the result. The result, for the result, we will look at verses one through four that talk about humility leading to unity. And then verses 12 to 16, that talks about obedience leading to sanctification. And then we'll look at a few examples of Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So here's the roadmap for today. We start in verse 5, not in verse 1. We start in verse 5, 5 through 11, the call and the example. Then we jump to verse 1 through 4, and then 12 to 16 to look at the result of obedience and humility. Now, what do we already know about this letter, right? The Apostle Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it to thank the Philippian church for their generosity, for sending monetary help, for sending Epaphroditus to help serve him. He also wrote to report back to them about why he was sending Epaphroditus back. He wanted to alert them about Timothy's coming and also about his own possible visit to them in the future. He wanted to encourage the Christians in the Philippian church to excel still more. They did not have major problems like other churches, but they did have a problem of disunity. So he was addressing that in the letter, and we'll learn that in chapter four. I'll briefly allude to that towards the end of the lesson today. But also in chapter three, we learn, and briefly again, because we will be studying those lessons in the future, he urges them to be aware of false teachers. Now, if we were to list all the characteristics of a leader in our world today, we would hear of bravery, of eloquence, of service, of sacrifice, of valor, right? But what we won't find on that list is humility. That doesn't mean they're not humble people. It just is not highlighted. You won't see a billboard saying, be humble. You won't see a t-shirt saying, be humble right? It is just not something that's on the top of the list for our world today. However, in contrast to that, Scripture emphasizes humility over and over again, the character of humility for believers. Listen to Luke 18, 14, says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then consider with me Jesus Christ, who is the greatest example of humility, the character which is rare to find and is despised in our world today. So we'll start in verse 5. Before that, let's define some terms. We might know about humility and obedience, right? We want to be humble. We want others to be humble. We want our kids to be obedient. I say that many times in the day. But here are the definitions by Merriam-Webster. Humility is the freedom from pride or arrogance, the quality or state of being humble. Obedience is the readiness or willingness to yield to the wishes of others, bending to the authority or control of another. So then let's read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We start there through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a bond servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Firstly, then, the call in verse 5. Now, this is a classic Christological passage in the New Testament dealing with the incarnation of Christ. It was probably sung as a hymn in the early church, but in the context of Philippians, Paul writes this not just for our theological understanding, but really for our application by giving us the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says, have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, it implies Jesus is our supreme example. He is the only example of humility and obedience, which is the super, the supreme most. As believers, this is a call to us to have a humble and an obedient attitude. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. We will learn how Paul unfolds this attitude for us. He describes in the next verses Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. So secondly, then, the example, verses 6 through 11. Let's look at verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So who is referring to the Lord Jesus? He existed, right? Existed is in the past tense, but that implies his pre-incarnate state. And continuing state, that means he continues to exist in the form of God. That is who he is, his very nature. Jesus is God. John tells us in the gospel, the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? He calls Jesus the word of God. In Colossians, Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. In Hebrews, we learn he is the radiance and the exact representation of his nature, of God's nature, that is. So Jesus is God. He existed in the form of God, and all the verses that we just reviewed emphasize his deity, that he is God. But he did not consider that equality with God, a thing to be grasped. In his own words in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He is equal to God. He is God. To grasp, as we might imagine, is to clutch something, like in robbery, or force something for selfish gain. But Jesus did not hold on to that, right? We, in our sinful flesh, hoard a lot of things, hold on to a lot of things, but Jesus did not. He willingly gave. He did not use his deity or being God for selfish gain. He willingly humbled himself. But Jesus, despite being equal with God, did not grasp 
that character, did not grasp that, but he had a sacrificial attitude by humbling himself. So the first part we learned emphasizes the deity of Christ, and the second part of that verse tells us about the equality with God, that Christ is equal to God. He is God. He obeyed the Father. Willingly, he did that. Look at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. Emptied himself. The self-emptying, you will read. Scholars call it the doctrine of kenosis. You may have heard this before, but that is self-emptying. To empty, right? What does that mean? So simple, right? To remove. I tell my kids, empty the dishwasher, empty the dryer, and empty the trash, right? This is not as simple as empty or remove, right? It is Jesus emptying himself, God of the heavens emptying himself. It means he willingly set aside his heavenly riches, the glory, the splendor that he had with the Father. But he never stopped being God. He was emptying by adding. Now, that's a tricky math for some of you who are math teachers. He added human nature to himself, right? Difficult to understand that math operation, but only God could do that. He emptied by adding on human nature. He never stopped being God. In the form of a bondservant means he became a servant. He stooped down to become a servant for us. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. One commentator says, For God to become a man was humbling enough, but he was willing to go even further. Christ could have come to earth in his true position as king of the universe. Instead, he took the role of a servant. The creator chose to serve his creatures. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we learn that this was God's grace, that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. He took on poverty so that we might become rich. And further in that verse, we learn, and being born in the likeness of men. In the Gospel of John, we learn that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Elsewhere, we learn that he was created, he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's like us, the man, the sinful flesh that we're in. But he took on all the essential attributes of humanity. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, ladies. Christ came, right? He humbled himself. He became a man. He stooped down to become a bondservant for us. He came in sinful flesh. Word became flesh. That is the true reason for Christmas. He did not come with all pomp and fanfare, but in a lowly state in that manger in Bethlehem. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and 4. We'll look at a couple of verses there. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. Let's look at verse 17. It says, He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Back in Philippians 2, Jesus in his humanity displayed his limitations. He was made just like us. He was tired, he was hungry, he wept, he was tempted, yet without sin. Look at verse 8 with me, Philippians 2. And being found in appearance as a man. Now this statement might just appear as a repetition, right? He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in the appearance of man. But really it's emphasizing that Jesus really became man. It's emphasizing his humanity. And to those around him in the first century, he just looked like any other Jewish man. So he became a man just like you and I in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus didn't just humble himself by becoming a man, right? He did not demand any of the human rights, but he subjected himself to persecution and suffering at the hand of unbelievers. He became obedient by humiliating himself in dying as a criminal, which he was not. Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one has taken it from me, that is his life. He has authority to take his own life. And um, he has authority to lay it down, rather, and to have authority to take it back. And that this commandment he received from God the Father. So he was willing and obedient he was obedient, not just to come down, but to die to the point of death, right? We know this verse really well, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Even through his agonizing moments, Jesus calls out to God the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36 tells us that. Jesus remained obedient to the Father's will. He died his, the death on a cross. The cross was shameful. The message of cross is foolishness to some. We know crucifixion is the cruelest, excruciatingly painful and shameful form of execution ever conceived. Jesus endured that for you and for me. So ladies, this is God eternal, humble to the grave. He is Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God. Come, let us adore him. We learned Christ's humiliation was active. He willingly emptied himself. He humbled himself. He died on the cross, the death of a criminal, even though he was not that. And Christ's exaltation is passive. He is the recipient of God's response. So look at verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him. And what is that reason? We know that. I'm going to repeat again. Christ humbled himself, obeyed the Father, took the form of a bondservant, became a man, stooped down low in a lowly state, and died on the cross. Because he was humiliated, what did God do? God highly exalted him. 
it's described as super exalted. Like it's hard to go to that degree. Super exalted in Greek as lifted up, raised up. The most magnificent way of exalting one. He who humbled himself was exalted. God gave him his rightful position of honor and glory. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, 5, he implores and says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And God did do that. God exalted him. John MacArthur describes Christ's exaltation fourfold. And I'll quickly go through this. First, resurrection, found in Mark 16, 6. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Ascension, he was lifted up in heavens, Acts chapter 1. Coronation, he is the king of his kingdom, and his kingdom is forever, in Matthew chapter 28. And intercession, his honored position of high priest at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. And we find that in Hebrews 7. So how did God exalt him? Continuing with verse 9. Bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What is that name? Lord. Lord. The Lord. He is the object of worship of the church. God freely gave him that name, generously gave him that name. He is Lord above every name. And the name written in Revelation 19, we learn, King of kings and Lord of lords. We heard that on Sunday. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And this will be at the name of Jesus, right? Let's turn to um, Isaiah 45 and read a couple of verses there. Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23. It says, turn to me and be saved. The Lord says this, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn my, by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. So Paul here describes three classes of created beings. In heaven, those referring to good angels, the archangels, and of course, all those redeemed spirits. Those on earth, all obedient human beings on earth. And those under the earth, those who are in hell, evil angels, demons, and Satan himself. Back in Philippians 2, look at verse 11. It says, and, at that, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every tongue referring to people from different languages will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. What a sight it will be, right? What a sight it will be when all of us, people from all over the world who know the Lord Jesus Christ, will acknowledge him as Lord in different tongues in different languages. This is the same name the Lord given to him above every name, above all names, Adonai, which means Lord, Master, Kurios, Christ. 
D.A. Carson says, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and jammed it on his head. They hit him and spit on him and then fell on their knees in mock homage, crying, Hail, King of the Jews. In fact, he's more than the King of the Jews. One day, each of those soldiers and everyone else will bow down before the resurrected man they mocked and crucified. And they will confess that he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So those of, who, those of us who know him, right, will worship him, will acknowledge his lordship. So those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ, be encouraged by these truths. We get to do that. But if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus, this is your opportunity. Do not let it pass. I want to request you, I want to implore you to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Believe in him as your Savior and Lord. Ladies, you want to meet the Lord as your Savior and as your King, not your judge. And why was Jesus exalted? To the glory of God the Father. The last part of verse 11 says, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus willingly humbled himself. He emptied himself. He was exalted, and the purpose was for God's glory. Listen to Jesus' words in John 13. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Not clear on one reading. You need to read it again. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Jesus was exalted to God's glory. I hear William Hendrickson comments, if Jesus is our Lord, if we say we're believers and Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, then we know he is our example. We ought to live the way he lived. But if he's not our example, and we call ourselves believers and Christians, then really our faith is barren and our doctrine is dead. That's really sobering, right? We represent Christ because we know who he is. We believe that. Our hearts are changed, and we want to represent him well in what we do, say, and think, and we'll learn that further. As we come to the end of this section of Jesus' exaltation, as I was studying, I was just reminded, we ought to rejoice, give thanks, and worship, right? It is like an instant response, like when you're seated at the end of a Christmas concert and the hallelujah chorus starts, what do we do? We just spring out out of our chairs and stand in honor to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we have looked at the call, the example, and now for the result. So thirdly, the result. What is the result? Humility leads to unity, 
and obedience leads to sanctification. We will look at verses one through four. Humility leads to unity, and then go to verses 12 through 16 for obedience leading to sanctification. So let's read here together in verse one. Philippians chapter two, verse one. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now briefly here about the disunity problem in the Philippian church. We'll learn more about that when we get to chapter four. But in verses two and three, we learn about Euodia and Syntyche. They had a conflict which was causing disunity in the church. Now these were prominent women who shared the cause of the gospel with Paul. They were believers and they shared in his struggle and Paul appeals to them to live in harmony, to set aside their own interest and to look out for the interest of others, to regard others more important than themselves. Now here in pursuing their own agenda, they were missing out on having the attitude of Christ. They were getting sidetracked from their calling. Paul reminds the church of these realities in verses one and two, encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the spirit, affection, and compassion. This is what we ought to have as believers. This is what we ought to remind ourselves as believers. And Paul further encourages them to be of the same mind, have the same love, be united in spirit, and have the same purpose. Sort of a repetition from chapter 1, verse 27. Stand firm with one mind, one spirit, striving together for the faith of of the gospel. That's the purpose. We need unity for the faith of the gospel. As believers, we are to rehearse this regularly. We are to exercise this. We are to exercise unity with other believers, and that is achieved through humility. How is that done? Let's go through a process of biblical change here. For process of biblical change, we have the put off and the put on. And what's the link in the middle? Renewing of our minds. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to be intentional about being in the word, growing to be more like our Savior, renewing our minds. And that's when we're able to put off and put on. So what are we putting off here? Selfishness, pride, empty conceit, vain glory, own agenda, and putting on humility of mind, regarding others more important than yourself. Putting off your own personal interest and putting on the interests of others. Several scriptures reference, references explain humility as regarding one another, being subject to one another, submitting to one another, devoting to one another, or rather being devoted to one another, giving preference to one another. John MacArthur in his study Bible notes says, this is the basic definition of humility, looking out for one another. 
Peter in his first letter, verse, uh, chapter five, verse five says, clothe yourself with hum- humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now this picture reminds me of just putting on, putting on that cloth, the cloak of humility, being intentional about it. You have to make an effort to do it. In our sinful flesh, doesn't come out naturally, but we have to intentionally put on humility and put off that pride. Do you clothe yourself with humility? Do you desire to cultivate humility? I know I want to. Those who know you, whether your family, co-workers, brothers and sisters at church, do they know you as a humble person? These are questions for us to ponder even as we think about how we ought to live as humble people. Now, our church practices humility, humility by looking out for one another in so many ways. Just a few I'm going to highlight here. Um, you know, taking time to disciple someone else through partners program. That's a big commitment, right? Looking out for others' interests, looking to disciple them. The care ministries, right? Looking out for shut-ins. They're not around here, but calling them, checking on them, taking them food and flowers, taking care of the bereaved in our church, those with chronic illness who cannot make it to all these events, right? Prayer shop, praying for our leaders, being intentional about those needs, and so many other ministries. Um, You know, I always think anytime there is a ministry fair, You can just, the list goes on and on and on. So much work, so much sacrifice, so much service that is being done behind the scenes. I know our church does it well. Excel still more. Excel still more believers. Melissa Kruger says, it is humbling to need someone else, right? And as a body of believers, we need each other. We need to be there for the other person, and we need others. I know my family has been blessed, is a recipient of many of your sacrificial service. You care for us, you pray for us, you love on us. So thank you for that. I love um, the Gospel Primer for Christians. It's one of my favorite books I use for devotional. Milton Vincent is the author. He says about cultivating humility Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel And more pride is mortified within me, the less frequent are my moments of sinful contention with God and with others. Conversely, humility grows lushly in the atmosphere of the gospel. Our elder board here at CBC are a group of godly men. They are humble servants. They are of the same mind They share the same love, they are united in spirit, and they have the same purpose. Their humility has led to unity on the elder board. They proclaim God's truth well, they love well, they shepherd and care for the flock. Praise God for each one of them. 
So our result, we looked at humility leading to unity, and then obedience leads to sanctification. Look with me at verses 12 through 16 in Philippians 2. Verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that on the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So how does obedience look in our lives? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandment. It's as simple as that, but it's so hard to do that, right? We obey by loving, by doing what he commanded. We love God and we love others. Jesus himself was obedient. The Philippian church was obeyed. They were obedient, so we must obey too. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. I love that song, I'm not gonna keep singing, but that's what we tell our kids. That's what we tell our kids. That's what is expected of us. It's the very best way to show that you believe. And Paul shows us how. By working out your own salvation with an attitude of fear and trembling. Now this salvation here is not referring to becoming saved. Right? It's not referring to you need to do works to be saved. It is talking about sanctification, being more like Christ in your walk with the Lord. So when you become a believer, when you are saved, when you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, when you acknowledge him as Savior and Lord, you are saved. Right? But we don't stop there. We ought to grow. We ought to pursue sanctification. And our obedience leads to sanctification. Once you're saved, we cannot have let go and let God attitude, right? We can't just sit tight and say, God's going to grow me. Yes, he is, but you need to put your 100% effort in it to live a godly life. And we do that with an attitude of fear and trembling, which is a reverential fear. When you fear the Lord, you will keep his commandments. You will want to do what he wants you to do. That is our desire. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, we learn, God looks to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at his word. Do we tremble at God's word? That is the attitude that's expected. That's what God is looking for in a humble person. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And who does that work in us? God himself does that work through the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you, if you're a believer, does that work of sanctification in our life. And he does this for the praise of his glory, for his good pleasure. And now we do this do it in all things without grumbling or disputing. Do we have a problem with that? When we think about grumbling, 
We think about the Israelites, wilderness wandering over and over and over. God provided meat, manna, water, grumbling. God took care of them. Their sandals did not wear out, grumbling, right? We quickly go to the wilderness wanderings, years of desert wandering and grumbling. We may not grumble for food and water, right? But someone cuts us off on the road, right? The daylight savings time, that was a big one. It took me two weeks to get used to that. The perpetual traffic in DFW, the construction, right? And so little time left to do a lot of things for Thanksgiving and Christmas. I can't believe it's next week. So much to do. When we are discontent, we're quick to express our dissatisfaction. If anyone had reason to complain, it was the Apostle Paul. He's sitting in Rome in a prison in chains and writing this book, right? writing this letter to the Philippians to be humble and have an obedient attitude. Do not grumble or dispute, right? That is to live worthy of the gospel. And so when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we let God work in our lives for his good pleasure, and we do all things without grumbling or disputing, we prove ourselves blameless before this crooked and perverse world by being lights in the dark world by holding fast to the word. That's what the next verses tell us. I love how King James Version translates the holding fast. It says holding forth. It's, I, I have that picture in my head of holding my Bible and doing this, like holding forth. That's how it ought to look. If you say you're a believer and you want to prove yourself to the world, to this dark world, you want to shine as bright as this light is in my face, or even brighter than that. Just bright where the darkness in this dark world, right? And by holding forth the word of God, which is the gospel. So what is the gospel? It is simple. We know this, we have heard this, and we ought to rehearse it on a regular basis. God is the creator. He is owner of all things. He is holy, and he cannot stand sin. He is loving and just, but man is sinful, and we have all fall short of the glory of God. We cannot save ourselves, but God only. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take our place. He, his death, burial, and resurrection reconciled us back to God. He took the wrath, he took the shame and the guilt on himself and gave us eternal life. What is our response is to repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the Philippian jailer and Lydia in Acts chapter 16? They believed when God opened their eyes to the gospel. And they were reading this letter also. So humility, the result is humility leads to unity and obedience leads to sanctification. As we hear these truths, I was reminded of the song we sing, Teach us, Lord, full obedience. Holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up 
for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Jesus is God. He is the perfect God-man forever. He is our perfect example of humility and obedience. We are imperfect in our sinful flesh. And it is hard to imagine to imitate his perfection, right? Even though we are told to do that. But we can strive to pursue the direction of Christ-likeness, growing daily in our walk with the Lord. The pattern should be upward, not the reverse direction. We will not go into details of the next verses from 17 to 30. Paul shares his own example. And further, very briefly he does that, and then further he presents Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, so you might have to just quickly look at the next page. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Again, we'll be studying this in the next few months. It says, he further, uh, rather, he, follow my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, it's important to note that all of these examples of godly men are modeled after the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a motivation to live in humility and obedience because of a life change in Christ. We can't do it in our own strength. As much as we want to be intentional, it cannot happen unless the Holy Spirit dwells in you, unless you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. He will do that work of making you more like Christ, and he will help you. He will help us to be humble and obedient. So let's look at these examples of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus very quickly here. Paul expresses his joy as being a drink offering over the sacrificial service of the Philippians. Now, drink offering was used in Old Testament to top off the animal sacrifice that would produce a soothing and a fragrant aroma to the Lord. He urges them to rejoice, to share in his joy regardless of his circumstances. Despite being in the prison, he was concerned for their unity. Paul's profile exhibits his humility in regarding the Philippian sacrifice more important than his. Their monetary help, their care for him, that was their sacrifice, though they were at a distance. He is putting their sacrifice first, and then he's just the top off. He's just the drink offering. His obedience was evident in being committed to the cause of Christ, whether in life or in death. We learned that in chapter 1. Let's look at Timothy. Paul called Timothy his true child, his beloved son in the faith. He became a believer during Paul's first missionary journey. He was from Lystra. He was a disciple, a co-laborer, a friend to Paul. He was kindred spirit. He was genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. He would encourage them and bring news of how they were doing back to Paul. He served with Paul for the furtherance of the gospel. Timothy's life exhibits Christ-like humility in looking out for the interest of others, like Paul and the Philippian church here. He was obedient to his calling for the furtherance of the gospel, and he served faithfully with Paul. Finally, let's look at Epaphroditus. 
He was a representative of the Philippian church. He brought many monetary gifts from the Philippian church to Paul, carrying, carrying it all the way there to Rome, and that was a big task. He was a reliable person. He was a fellow worker, a soldier and messenger who was sent to meet Paul's needs. He became sick on route, but God had mercy on him, and he recovered. He risked his life for the work of Christ. He completed the task that he came for. He fulfilled the deficient service of the church. Not that they were lacking, but the distance kept them from being there for Paul. So Epaphroditus was sent. Now his life also exhibits Christ-like humility by sacrificially serving Paul and being obedient, by leaving his home and helping and serving Paul, by being obedient with his commitment to serve Christ, even risking his life. Lest we say, well, that was the Apostle Paul, right? Epaphroditus was first century believer. Timothy was the pastor, right? But we have an example right here before us in our church. We celebrated the Pennington's 20th anniversary a few weeks ago, and Pastor Tom has been our pastor since 2003. And so many stories and testimonies came out that weekend about knowing his character as a humble person. Some of you know him longer than I do and know the Penningtons longer, and just that character stood out. So Pastor Tom is both a humble man and an obedient man who has been faithfully teaching God's word Sunday after Sunday for many years. He has been obedient to God's calling on his life. Are there any examples in your own life, men and women, who have been humble and obedient, who you have seen up close, who you would like to imitate? Are you an example of an obedient and a humble person that someone would love to imitate? As we break for the holidays until the new year, and we have two chapters to go through, it's a busy season. But take time, take time to heed our call to humility and obedience. Meditate on Christ, our example, and commit these verses to memory. Not all of chapter 2, unless you're very ambitious, you can do that. But I'm going to challenge you to at least memorize three verses. I'm going to read that for us. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. We have many opportunities in this holiday season to do that. And do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let's thank the Lord for his word. Dear God, I just thank you for this opportunity for us to get together, to learn your truths, to learn from your word. Pray that these truths would be planted deep in our hearts. Pray that we would heed the call for humility and obedience. I pray, Lord, that we would meditate on Christ, our example, the supreme example ever lived. Pray, Lord, that we would commit these truths to memory. Pray that we would be reminded of the result that when we are humble, it leads to unity in the body of believers. When we are obedient, it leads to our own sanctification, our growth in the Lord Jesus, to be more like him daily. 
Help us to go forth in this world as lights in this dark world and to hold forth the gospel for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.